While the skin is our single largest organ, when you take the entire surface area of the inside of the GI system, it dwarfs the surface area of your skin. So together, the GI system is actually your largest immune organ, not the skin. In fact, about 80% of all of the immune cells in your body are in your gut. There are two main reasons why your gut is so immunoalert, which for the record is a word I just made up. First, your gut houses more bacteria than all other parts of your body combined. These bacteria eat indigestible fibers and create many of the nutrients and vitamins that you need to survive. Your body has to be vigilant to figure out which bacteria to leave alone and which bacteria to kill off. The second reason your gut is so immune alert is that a lot of the foreign material you come into contact with on any given day is in your food and water. The GI system is truly fascinating and underappreciated. But before we can talk about the immune diseases of the gut, I need to make sure you have a good model of the GI system in your head. So stick with me for a couple of minutes as we wander through the gut. Your gut, or GI system, starts with your mouth. When you take a bite of something, the food immediately meets saliva that is full of immune cells. The saliva drips back towards the tonsils, which have special cells to sense invaders. I personally have seen my child bite into something and immediately spit it out. An allergic reaction can start the second food hits his mouth and tongue, thanks to the immune cells, the saliva, and the sensors in the tonsils. After swallowing, food passes along the immune cells of the esophagus to the stomach, where food gets all broken down, and then onto the intestines. Your small intestine is where nutrients and vitamins are pulled out of food and passed into the bloodstream. Your large intestine is where trillions of bacteria eat all the fiber we can't digest. In the intestines, vitamins and nutrients are pulled out of food and passed across the intestinal wall to your bloodstream. Because this gateway could be a prime target for bacteria and parasites, the intestines are lined with a thick mucus that is full of immune cells. After anything useful is taken out of the food, anything left behind uh, exits out the back chute. So, if you hold that whole system, mouth, esophagus, stomach, intestines, in your head for a moment, you'll notice that the GI system is actually one continuous tube from mouth to colon. The things you eat and drink kind of stay in the tube. Only little bits that have been pre-processed are allowed into the bloodstream. So in some sense, you and all your other organs are kind of like a donut surrounding this GI tube. Another way of saying it is that your GI system is actually outside of you, and you are protected from the things in the GI tract by the walls of the GI system. So your GI tube is actually a barrier, just like your lungs and skin are. So... You won't be surprised to understand that there are many different immune diseases that can happen in the GI system. We know about IgE food allergies, but there are also food intolerances. There are non-IgE food allergies, like EOE, which we'll hear a lot about today. That one happens in the esophagus. There's also F-Pies, which is not a delicious dessert. It's something that happens in the intestines. There's IBS, or irritable bowel syndrome, which is a poorly understood disease of the intestine. And that long list still leaves out autoimmune diseases like celiac disease, Crohn's disease, and ulcerative colitis. There's actually so much to cover when it comes to the GI system that I chose to leave out the autoimmune diseases. Instead, we're going to talk to some of the doctors that focus on IgE and non-IgE allergies of the GI system. My name is Ben Wright. I'm an assistant professor of medicine at Mayo Clinic, Arizona. I trained in a pediatric residency at the University of Utah and became very interested in food allergy. I was fascinated by the fact that somebody could be healthy and then eat a food and then suddenly be deathly ill and uh, wanted to figure out ways to treat those patients. In general, if someone says they have a food allergy, what they are talking about is an IgE antibody-related allergy of the gut. 
This is the same kind of allergy that we see in allergic eczema and allergic asthma. But it is now recognized that there are also food allergies that are not IgE-related, the same way that there are other kinds of eczema and other kinds of asthma. Because of his research, I asked Dr. Wright to explain the difference between IgE and non-IgE food allergies. So IgE-mediated allergies typically are associated with acute onset symptoms, so hives, swelling, difficulty breathing, anaphylaxis. And they're typically caused by basophila mast cell degranulation. So those are the immunologic responses that are driving those acute responses. As he said, the hallmark of IgE allergies is that the reactions are immediate and fast. But in non-IgE-mediated allergy, usually there are more delayed reactions. So FPIs, or your food protein induced enterocolitis syndrome, would be an example of a non-IgE-mediated reaction. EOE is a non-IgE-mediated reaction. An immunologic response to a specific food that's not associated with that acute degranulation event. And non-IgE allergies are still Th2 responses, but the symptoms are delayed by hours or even days. In EOE, we think that the mast cells and base cells have been either regulated in some way or that their degranulating responses have been suppressed so that they're not going to have that acute response, but you'll have a more delayed response. With FPIs, there's been some interesting research looking at monocytes and macrophages in terms of their roles in eliciting the, the delayed response associated with that. We don't totally understand these non-IgE allergies. We know that they involve some of the same immune cells, like mast cells and basophils, but for some reason, the response has been suppressed, so it gets delayed. We know that if we use drugs that stop IgE antibodies, they don't help in non-IgE allergies. So something else is going on. What's particularly strange is that the immune response is continuing after the food has left the GI system. Yeah, so typically it's going to require an antigen to stimulate the immune response. And then you have more of a chronic remodeling response that's occurring and it's being driven by T cells. So that's, that's likely what's occurring in UE. And I mean, we know that with, in the context of diet elimination, so for example, if you put somebody on an elemental formula and you remove all foods, then those patients get better. 95% of them will have resolution of the inflammation in their esophagus. What he just said is that we know it's food causing the non-IgE allergies, because if you put someone on an allergen-free protein shake diet, all their symptoms clear up. So it's a different kind of food allergy, but it's still a food allergy. Dr. Wright understood that a food trigger was actually causing EOE because he saw so many people who were undergoing oral immunotherapy develop EOE. We'll hear more about oral immunotherapy, or OIT, in the treatments episode. But for now, you just need to know that what it involves is a person eating a teeny amount of something they are already IgE allergic to under the watch of an allergist. Almost universally, OIT does provoke some degree of esophageal inflammation uh, associated with the eosinophils. And in a majority of patients, it's transient, which is really fascinating to me. But in some patients, it can persist. And some patients can have persistent disease even after stopping OIT. And the question has been, do they have pre-existing disease in the beginning? Or are they just more susceptible to EOE and they would have developed it anyways? Or does OIT truly induce eosinophilic esophagitis? And so uh, recently we published a study with Stanford University where we did longitudinal endoscopic biopsies in patients, which means we did a procedure in the beginning, we did it in the middle, we did it at the end. And we showed that some patients have pre-existing esophageal eosinophilia, so they have elevated type 2 inflammation markers uh, in the esophagus to begin with. 
OIT is the only treatment we have today for IgE food allergy, and EOE is a known possible side effect for about 10 to 20% of children. Dr. Wright's team found that the patients who develop EOE seem to have a more active Th2 immune response going on in their esophagus before they start treatment. But his study actually uncovered something even more interesting. One of the things that we found that was universal in all patients prior to starting oral immunotherapy is that they had evidence of barrier dysfunction. So if you look at the esophageal biopsies of all the patients, they have dilated intercellular spaces, which means that the food antigens can penetrate through the lining of the esophagus and provoke immune responses. His study found that all the patients undergoing OIT had broken barriers of the esophagus. There were actually gaps between the cells of the throat that could let food through. I think that Ruslan Meshtadov, who's a scientist at Yale University, really has the right idea that allergic responses are actually initially protective responses, that after they persist, start to become maladaptive. So if you think of the epithelium or the lining of the esophagus or the GI tract as dyke or levy, so in patients with allergies, there's a break in the levy. And the immune system really is coming to try to shore up the levy to enhance mucus production and expel things and try to protect the body from invading pathogens and microbes. Alarm signals then initiate allergic processes that then influence the way that a food allergen that is normally innocuous, then it becomes like an enemy and is, is expelled on further exposure. So what he just said is that in people with allergies, there is something wrong with their gut barrier. The immune system initially shows up to keep the body safe. And then when a harmless food ends up accidentally crossing the broken barrier, the immune system tags it as dangerous with IgE antibodies. And so really with food allergy and EOE, we have barrier dysfunction. But then in the context of persistent antigen exposure, you change the immune response from being an immediate hypersensitivity response to more of a chronic inflammatory Th2 response. What does that mean? When you don't fix the barrier and keep exposing a person to a food, like you're doing in oral immunotherapy, you can create a non-IgE allergy on top of the IgE one. But the first step is the broken barrier. We heard the same concept of the broken barrier in our discussions on the skin and a little bit on the lungs. So I asked Dr. Wright if it was all the same thing. Yeah, I think it's, it's very comparable to the GI tract. Anytime there's an air-liquid interface, essentially, there's going to be this exposure to the environment that may lead us to be susceptible to allergic disease. You know, I think the, the biggest question to me, and this is true for all allergic diseases, is that they're all associated with some degree of barrier disruption. And so what is it, either genetic or environmental, that's driving that barrier dysfunction? What are we doing to ourselves that may be causing that susceptibility that then leads to these type 2 immune responses? I think there's some hot research going on looking at detergents and their effects on tight junction proteins. Certainly antibiotics can disturb the microbiome and influence the status of the epithelium. I think really there's an important symbiosis that occurs with the microbial constituents inside of our GI tract or our respiratory tree that influence the status of the epithelium. Here's that common thread again. All of our barriers are designed to protect us from the outside world. And all allergic disease is maybe being driven by barrier dysfunction. Dr. Wright even got into some of the things that might be causing that barrier disruption. Those are spoilers for the next couple of episodes. Before we get there, I want to learn a little bit more about GI immune disease. 
After speaking with Dr. Wright, I met another researcher, Dr. Mark Grothenberg, who also studies EOE. While Dr. Wright came to EOE from treating IgE food allergies, Dr. Rothenberg was studying EOE and recently uncovered a link to irritable bowel syndrome. I am an immunologist and an allergist, and I run a research lab focused on mechanisms of allergy, allergic inflammation. I got involved in IBS because, because some of the evidence is accumulating that the immune system, particularly the allergic arm of the immune system, is involved in a variety of GI symptoms that sometimes overlap with irritable bowel syndrome. Irritable bowel syndrome is abdominal pain and discomfort that, that lasts at least one day a week and is uh, chronic in nature, and, and it typically includes pain and discomfort related to uh, defecation and stool problems. People with um, a variety of different discomforts and syndromes would fall into the category of, of irritable bowel syndrome. Irritable bowel syndrome in general is, is defined as an idiopathic disease one in which there is a, an absence of, of pathology, meaning that there's no evidence for an inflammatory process, whether it be by scanning or by endoscopy followed by biopsy is generally normal. Very common, could be up to 10% or more of the population has GI symptoms that might fall into the category of irritable bowel syndrome. You almost definitely know someone with IBS. It's super common but because it involves, as he said, defecation, most people don't like to talk about it. People with IBS can find it hard to work, travel, go out to eat. But as Dr. Rothenberg said, if a person with these symptoms has an endoscopy, it'll come back negative. So people suffering from IBS are often just told it's in their heads, or they just have to change their diet, but they don't really know how. Turns out, it's probably another immune disease. There is uh, accumulating evidence that the immune system, particularly the allergic arm of the immune system, related to the inflammatory cells called mast cells and eosinophils are involved in, in the disease. Now, irritable bowel syndrome, according to the theories that are developing, is related to a sensation, which is um, typically pain and discomfort. The theories that have been developed that I'm particularly interested in is that the allergic inflammatory cells are communicating with the nerve cells that are part of the brain-gut axis and that leads to a hypersensitivity of the nerves and, and contributes to the irritable bowel syndrome. In terms of how this occurs, we think that IgE may be involved. It probably isn't the primary trigger, although there's recent evidence that the IgE may be working locally. So normally with anaphylaxis, we think of a full body experience, a rash, it could be a blood pressure change, it could be wheezing, a systemic reaction. Now, in the case of IBS, what some of the theories are is that there are local changes that could be mediated by IgE and that these mast cells, for example, are embedded in the colon with IgE. And these mast cells are uh, responding to dietary proteins and only getting activated locally. It turns out that some of these cells, like mast cells, if you look in the body where they reside, they are um, residual cells and they are sentinel cells. They're actually like, you might consider them part of the immune defense system, like soldiers sitting in the tissue guarding different mucosa. Where do they sit? They sit in the mucosa, which is the lining. In the mucosa is actually nerves, okay? Nerves actually infiltrate 
the um, all tissues pretty much. And where the mast cells are located is in juxtaposition. They're located right next to the nerves. There's a lot of nerves that go through the intestine and we're finding, you know, that these nerves are actually communicating with the inflammatory cells. What's interesting, you know, is that the inflammation can be very subtle or gone, okay? And the nerves still remain dysfunctional. And this is really something that I'm particularly interested in. So IBS is an allergy in the sense that mast cells in the mucus are releasing inflammatory proteins just like they do in IgE food allergies. But in the case of IBS, this release is happening locally in the intestinal mucus only, into the nerves that sense GI pain and discomfort. Because Dr. Rothenberg came upon this connection to IBS while researching EOE, I asked him if EOE was the same process. When these cells get activated, they obviously cause inflammation, which is swelling of the tissue, and they can release mediators and attract other cells, and they can cause mucus production. They can cause smooth muscle contraction, like in the case of asthma, where the airways get small. In the case of the intestine, you might see changes in, in muscle function. You could see difficulty swallowing. You could see high, uh, problems with motility and things like that. So EOE is different in that the inflammation cascade involves different cells and a contraction of the throat muscles instead of pinging the nerves. But they are similar in that they are a local allergy, where the symptoms can continue long after the trigger food has gone. Again, this is different than an IgE food allergy, where the response is throughout the body and the symptoms stop as soon as the food trigger has gone. Though I worry about anaphylaxis from IgE food allergies with my son, I think having a chronic allergy might actually be worse. You know, I think for patients is, why is my disease so chronic? Why is irritable bowel syndrome continue? Even though the doctor says that there's no inflammation, why does a patient also with an eosinophilic GI disease respond to the medication that we give them or the diet elimination? And then we tell them that their eosinophils are gone, but their nerves are still firing. They still don't feel good. They still feel crummy. They still have sensitization. They still have dysmotility. They still have pain. And this is a very substantial problem in, in, in a subset of patients that we're particularly working on. So the question there scientifically is how do the nerves remember the inflammation and how do they remain abnormal, which is hypersensitive to different stimuli? When I first learned about Dr. Rothenberg's work, what caught my attention was a finding that many people who develop IBS can trace the start back to a GI bug or infection they had. It reminded me how my nephew's type 1 diabetes started right after he had a virus and how Dr. Lederer said that some lung diseases start after a virus. There's even a body of evidence saying that eczema starts after a skin infection, which is something that happened to my son. I asked Dr. Rothenberg if this virus trigger was the cause of many GI immune diseases. Yes. Um, we often see that there are infectious triggers for these chronic GI diseases, whether it be IBS or EOE or eosinophil GI disease. That the infections, and it depends on which ones, but basically uh, it could be a parasite, it could be a bacteria, it could be a virus, it could be other types of pathogens. When we have these triggers, we will typically see what we refer to as a breakdown in the barrier function or IBF, impaired barrier function. And if you think about it, you know, what is the purpose of the GI tract? I mean, there's a lot of purposes, but but one of the things I think about is the esophagus, you know, and uh, what it has to do is have a very strong lining. Basically, when you break that barrier, you no longer have the separation of what's inside the lumen from what's going to be absorbed. 
when you have a break of barrier, you're going to absorb things, which include not only the pathogens, which can migrate into the mucosa and even in some cases into the, into the whole body, but you get the proteins and the allergens and the, and the dietary molecules that then get absorbed. And the immune system is actually sitting right below the mucosa and inside the mucosa, the bottom levels of the mucosa. And that activates the immune system. And this is a fascinating component to think about. The only organs in the body that have memory is hopefully your brain <laughs> and your immune system. So they're actually communicating with each other through the brain immune gut axis. If you remember from a few minutes earlier, Dr. Wright said almost the same thing about barrier dysfunction. Well, why isn't there more of a focus on just like, I don't know, Vaselining the GI lining? Can you just... Can you just replace the gut mucosa? Why can't we do that? A good approach. I don't know of too many treatments right now that are, like you said, um, successful in that regard. But we, you know, I think that, you know, medical research is complicated. It doesn't happen overnight. And we need more deep research. And, and, and the biggest example I can say is that the theory of the barrier is, is complex, and it's not just simply just applying a sealant, like you said. And we know that because people have tried this on the skin, you know, at atopic dermatitis. And, and it's not like it's a win, you know, a home run, you know, putting topical emollients and barrier creams on the skin to prevent the eczema and then prevent the atopic marsh. It's, there's some data that it's working, but most of the data is indicating that it's, it's a lot more complicated than just putting a sealant on to repair the barrier. The microbiome is important. As you know, the mucosa is lined with microbiome, especially in the intestine. And the main cells in the body are, are bacteria. You know, there's more DNA from bacteria and there's more cells from bacteria than your own cells, which is fascinating. And the main place that they reside is in the intestine. And and the esophagus is its own microbiome. And this is very important for homeostasis, health, and, and disease. And, and, and the mucosa is intimately regulated by the the microbiome, anytime you get an infection, it changes the microbiome. Anytime you take antibiotics, it modifies the microbiome. And, 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 and there's evidence emerging that there's different types of microbiome. There's the healthy ones and there's the pathogenic ones. And even people with food allergies have a different microbiome. And you can take that microbiome and put them into mice and the mice develop food allergies. So, you know, there's so many in, much interesting data that's emerging about all of this. And it's an intimate connection with the infection the antibiotics and, and the microbiome that's regulating the mucosa, which is regulating the barrier function. Completely unscripted, Dr. Rothenberg gave an excellent synopsis of so many things we've learned so far and where we're going from here. At this point, hopefully you've caught a few key concepts. I want to review them before we move on. The first concept is that there are a lot of similarities in immune diseases of the lungs, skin, and gut. The main reason is that all of these organs or systems are barriers between us and the outside world. The second concept is that the Th2 pathway, sometimes with IgE antibodies, sometimes without, is running the show in allergic diseases. The Th1 or Th17 pathways run the show in autoimmune disease. The third concept is that immune diseases happen when the body overreacts to something harmless or when it starts a healing process and it just can't stop. For the first couple episodes, we talked about the triggers of immune disease, like mold or peanut, as the things that cause the symptoms. But what we heard in this episode is that the true trigger, the thing that set off the immune disease in the first place, 
was often an infection, something that the immune system was supposed to react to. Now that we have done this tour of our barrier organs, it's time to peel back the next layer. We need to understand why the immune system starts to act inappropriately and why people's barriers are breaking down. That's next time on Fixing Sick. Fixing Sick was written and produced by me, Mina Lele. Audio engineering was done by Chris Whitmore. The opinions I state in this podcast are my own. My guests only said what they said, and any mistakes are totally my own.